Chapter One of Captains Courageous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Captains Courageous by Rudyard Kipling. Chapter One. The weather door of the smoking-room had been left open to the North Atlantic fog, as the big liner rolled and lifted, whistling to warn the fishing fleet. "'That Shane boy's the biggest nuisance aboard,' said a man in a frieze overcoat, shutting the door with a bang. "'He isn't wanted here. He's too fresh.' A white-haired German reached for a sandwich and grunted between bites. "'I know der breed. America is full of dot kind. I tell you, you should import rope's ends free under your tariff. Pshaw! There isn't any real harm to him. He's more to be pitied than anything. A man from New York drawled, as he lay at full length along the cushions under the wet skylight. They've dragged him around from hotel to hotel ever since he was a kid. I was talking to his mother this morning. She's a lovely lady, but she don't pretend to manage him. He's going to Europe to finish his education. "'Education isn't begun yet.' This was a Philadelphian curled up in a corner. "'That boy gets two hundred a month pocket-money,' he told me. "'He isn't sixteen, either.' "'Railroads, his father, aren't it?' said the German. "'Yep. That and mines and lumber and shipping. Built one place at San Diego, the old man has, another at Los Angeles. Owns half a dozen railroads.' half the lumber on the Pacific Slope, and lets his wife spend the money." The Philadelphian went on lazily. "'The West don't suit her,' she says. She just tracks around with the boy and her nerves, trying to find out what'll amuse him, I guess. Florida, Adirondacks, Lakewood, Hot Springs, New York, round again. He isn't much more than a second-hand hotel clerk now. When he's finished in Europe he'll be a holy terror." "'What's the matter with the old man attending to him personally?' said a voice from the freeze ulster. "'Old man's piling up the rocks. Don't want to be disturbed, I guess. He'll find out his error a few years from now. Pity, because there's a heap of good in the boy, if you can get at it.' "'Mit a rope's end! Mit a rope's end!' growled the German. Once more the door banged, and a slight, slim-built boy, perhaps fifteen years old, a half-smoked cigarette hanging from one corner of his mouth, leaned in over the high footway. His pasty yellow complexion did not show well on a person of his years, and his look was a mixture of irresolution, bravado, and very cheap smartness. He was dressed in a cherry-coloured blazer, knickerbockers, red stockings, and bicycle shoes with a red flannel cap at the back of his head. After whistling between his teeth as he eyed the company, he said in a loud voice, "'Say, it's thick outside. You can hear the fish-boats squawking all around us. Say, wouldn't it be great if we ran one down?' "'Shut the door, Harvey,' said the New Yorker. "'Shut the door, and stay outside. You're not wanted here.' "'Who'll stop me?' he answered deliberately. "'Did you pay for my passage, Mr. Martin?' 
Guess I've as good right here as the next man. He picked up some dice from a checkerboard and began throwing, right hand against left. Say, gentlemen, this is deader in mud. Can't we make a game of poker between us? There was no answer, and he puffed his cigarette, swung his legs, and drummed on the table with rather dirty fingers. Then he pulled out a roll of bills as if to count them. "'How's your mamma this afternoon?' a man said. "'I didn't see her at lunch.' "'In her stateroom, I guess. She's most always sick on the ocean. I'm going to give the stewardess fifteen dollars for looking after her. I don't go down more than I can avoid. It makes me feel mysterious to pass that butler's pantry place. Say, this is the first time I've been on the ocean.' "'Oh, don't apologize, Harvey.' "'Who's apologizing? This is the first time I've crossed the ocean, gentlemen, and, except the first day, I haven't been sick one little bit. No, sir!' He brought down his fist with a triumphant bang, wetted his finger, and went on counting the bills. "'Oh, you're a high-grade machine with the writing in plain sight,' the Philadelphian yawned. "'You'll blossom into a—' credit to your country if you don't take care i know it i'm an american first last and all the time i'll show em that when i strike europe piff my cig's out i can't smoke the truck the steward sells any gentleman got a real turkish cig on him the chief engineer entered for a moment red smiling and wet say mac cried harvey cheerfully how are we hitting it? Very much in the ordinary way, was the grave reply. The young are as polite as ever to their elders, and their elders are in trying to appreciate it. A low chuckle came from a corner. The German opened his cigar case and handed a skinny black cigar to Harvey. That is the proper apparatus to smoke, my young friend, he said. You will try it, yes? then you will be ever so happy." Harvey lit the unlovely thing with a flourish. He felt that he was getting on in grown-up society. "'It would take more than this to kill me over,' he said, ignorant that he was lighting that terrible article, a wheeling stogie. "'Dot we will presently see,' said the German. "'Where are we now, Mr. MacDonald?' "'Just there or thereabouts, Mr. Schaefer,' said the engineer. "'We'll be on the Grand Bank to-night, but in a general way of speaking, we're all among the fishing fleet now. We've shaved three dories and near scalped the boom off a Frenchman since noon, and that's close sailing, you may say.' "'You like my cigar, eh?' the German asked, for Harvey's eyes were full of tears. "'Fine, full flavor.' he answered through shut teeth. "'Guess we've slowed down a little, haven't we? I'll skip out and see what the log says.' "'I might, if I fuss you,' said the German. Harvey staggered over the wet decks to the nearest rail. He was very unhappy, but he saw the deck-steward lashing chairs together, and, since he had boasted before the man that he was never seasick, his pride made him go aft to the second saloon deck at the stem, which was finished in a turtle-back. 
The deck was deserted, and he crawled to the extreme end of it, near the flagpole. There he doubled up in limp agony, for the wheeling stogie joined with the surge and jar of the screw to sieve out his soul. His head swelled, sparks of fire danced before his eyes, his body seemed to lose weight, while his heels wavered in the breeze. He was fainting from seasickness, and a roll of the ship tilted him over the rail on to the smooth lip of the turtle-back. Then a long, grey mother-wave swung out of the fog, tucked Harvey under one arm, so to speak, and pulled him off and away to leeward. The great green closed over him, and he went quietly to sleep. He was roused by the sound of a dinner-horn, such as they used to blow at a summer-school he had once attended in the Adirondacks. Slowly he remembered that he was Harvey Shane, drowned and dead in mid-ocean, but was too weak to fit things together. A new smell filled his nostrils, wet and clammy chills ran down his back, and he was helplessly full of salt water. When he opened his eyes he perceived that he was still on top of the sea, for it was running round him in silver-coloured hills, and he was lying on a pile of half-dead fish, looking at a broad human back clothed in a blue jersey. "'It's no good,' thought the boy. "'I'm dead, sure enough, and this thing is in charge.' He groaned, and the figure turned its head, showing a pair of little gold rings half-hidden in curly black hair. "'Aha! You feel some pretty well now?' it said. Lie still so. We trim better." With a swift jerk he sculled the flickering boat-head on to a foamless sea that lifted her twenty full feet, only to slide her into a glassy pit beyond. But this mountain-climbing did not interrupt Blue Jersey's talk. "'Fine good job, I say, that I catch you. Eh, what? Better good job, I say, your boat not catch me. How you come to fall out? I was sick," said Harvey, sick and couldn't help it. Just in time I blow my horn and your boat she yaw a little. Then I see you come all down. Eh, what? I think you're cut into baits by the screw, but you are drift, drift to me, and I make a big fish of you. So you shall not die this time. Where am I? said Harvey, who could not see that life was particularly safe where he lay. "'You are with me in the dory. Manuel, my name, and I come from schooner We're Here of Gloucester. I live to Gloucester. By and by we get supper. Eh, what?' He seemed to have two pairs of hands and a head of cast iron, for, not content with blowing through a big conch shell, he must needs stand up to it, swaying with the sway of the flat-bottomed dory and send a grinding, thuttering shriek through the fog. How long this entertainment lasted Harvey could not remember, for he lay back terrified at the sight of the smoking swells. He fancied he heard a gun, and a horn, and a shouting. Something bigger than the dory, but quite as lively, loomed alongside. Several voices talked at once. He was dropped into a dark, heaving hole where men in oilskins gave him a hot drink and took off his clothes, and he fell asleep. When he waked he listened for the first breakfast bell on the steamer, wondering why his stateroom had grown so small. Turning, he looked into a narrow triangular cave, 
lit by a lamp hung against a huge square beam. A three-cornered table within arm's reach ran from the angle of the bows to the foremast. At the after-end, behind a well-used Plymouth stove, sat a boy about his own age, with a flat red face and a pair of twinkling grey eyes. He was dressed in a blue jersey and high rubber boots. Several pairs of the same sort of footwear, an old cap and some worn-out woolen socks lay on the floor, and black and yellow oilskins swayed to and fro beside the bunks. The place was packed as full of smells as a bale is of cotton. The oilskins had a peculiarly thick flavour of their own, which made a sort of background to the smells of fried fish, burnt grease, paint, pepper, and stale tobacco. But these, again, were all hooped together by one encircling smell of ship and salt water. Harvey saw with disgust that there were no sheets on his bed-place. He was lying on a piece of dingy ticking full of lumps and nubbles. Then, too, the boat's motion was not that of a steamer. She was neither sliding nor rolling, but rather wriggling herself about in a silly, aimless way, like a colt at the end of a halter. Water noises ran by close to his ear, and beams creaked and whined about him. All these things made him grunt despairingly and think of his mother. "'Feeling better?' said the boy, with a grin. "'Have some coffee?' He brought a tin cup full, and sweetened it with molasses. "'Isn't there milk?' said Harvey, looking round the dark double tier of bunks, as if he expected to find a cow there. "'Well, no,' said the boy. "'Nur there ain't likely to be till about mid-September. Tain't bad coffee. I made it.' Harvey drank in silence, and the boy handed him a plate full of pieces of crisp fried pork which he ate ravenously. "'I've dried your clothes. Guess they've shrunk some,' said the boy. "'They ain't our style much. None of em. Twist round and see if you hurt any.' Harvey stretched himself in every direction, but could not report any injuries. "'That's good,' the boy said heartily. "'Fix yourself and go on deck. Dad wants to see you. I'm his son. Dan, they call me and I'm cook's helper and everything else aboard that's too dirty for the men. There ain't no boy here except me since Otto went overboard, and he was only a duchy and twenty-year-old at that. How'd you come to fall off on a dead flat calm?" "'Twasn't a calm," said Harvey sulkily. It was a gale, and I was seasick. Guess I must have rolled over the rail. There was a little common swell yesterday and last night said the boy. But if that's your notion of a gale, he whistled, you'll know more for you're through. Hurry, Dad's waiting. Like many other unfortunate young people, Harvey had never in all his life received a direct order, never, at least, without long and sometimes tearful explanations of the advantage of obedience and the reasons for the request. Mrs. Shane lived in fear of breaking his spirit which, perhaps, was the reason that she herself walked on the edge of nervous prostration. He could not see why he should be expected to hurry for any man's pleasure, and said so. "'Your dad can come down here if he's so anxious to talk to me. I want him to take me to New York right away. It'll pay him.' 
Dan opened his eyes, as the size and beauty of this joke dawned on him. "'Say, Dad!' he shouted up the forecastle hatch. "'He says you can slip down and see him if you're anxious that way. Here, Dad?' The answer came back in the deepest voice Harvey had ever heard from a human chest. "'Quit fooling, Dan, and send him to me.' Dan sniggered and threw Harvey his warped bicycle shoes. There was something in the tones on the deck that made the boy dissemble his extreme rage, and console himself with the thought of gradually unfolding the tale of his own and his father's wealth on the voyage home. This rescue would certainly make him a hero among his friends for life. He hoisted himself on deck up a perpendicular ladder, and stumbled aft over a score of obstructions, to where a small, thick-set, clean-shaven man with grey eyebrows sat on a step that led up to the quarter-deck. The swell had passed in the night, leaving a long, oily sea, dotted round the horizon with the sails of a dozen fishing-boats. Between them lay little black specks showing where the dories were out fishing. The schooner, with a triangular riding-sail on the mainmast, played easily at anchor, and except for the man by the cabin-roof, house, they call it, she was deserted. "'Morning. Good afternoon, I should say. You've nigh slept the clock round, young feller,' was the greeting. "'Morning,' said Harvey. He did not like being called young feller, and as one rescued from drowning expected sympathy. His mother suffered agonies whenever he got his feet wet, but this mariner did not seem excited. "'Now let's hear all about it.' It's quite providential, first and last, for all concerned. What might be your name? Where from? We mistrust it's New York. And where bound? We mistrust it's Europe. Harvey gave his name, the name of the steamer, and a short history of the accident, winding up with a demand to be taken back immediately to New York, where his father would pay anything anyone chose to name. Huh said the shaven man, quite unmoved by the end of Harvey's speech. "'I can't say we think special of any man, or boy, even, that falls overboard from that kind of packet in a flat calm, least of all when his excuse is that he's seasick.' "'Excuse!' cried Harvey. "'Do you suppose I'd fall overboard into your dirty little boat for fun?' "'Not knowing what your notions of fun may be, I can't rightly say.' young feller. But if I was you, I wouldn't call the boat which, under Providence, was the means of saving you names. In the first place it's blame irreligious. In the second, it's annoying to my feelings, and I'm disco troop of the We're Here, a Gloucester, which you don't seem rightly to know. I don't know and I don't care, said Harvey. I'm grateful enough for being saved, and all that, of course, but I want you to understand that the sooner you take me back to New York, the better it'll pay you." "'Meaning how?' Troop raised one shaggy eyebrow over a suspiciously mild blue eye. "'Dollars and cents,' said Harvey, delighted to think that he was making an impression. "'Cold dollars and cents!' He thrust a hand into a pocket, and threw out his stomach a little, which was his way of being grand. "'You've done the best day's work you ever did in your life when you pulled me in. I'm all the son Harvey Shane has.' 
"'He's been favoured,' said Disco, dryly. "'And if you don't know who Harvey Shane is, you don't know much. That's all. Now turn her around, and let's hurry!' Harvey had a notion that the greater part of America was filled with people discussing and envying his father's dollars. "'Maybe I do, and maybe I don't. Take a reef in your stomach, young feller. It's full of my vittles.' Harvey heard a chuckle from Dan, who was pretending to be busy by the stump foremast, and the blood rushed to his face. "'We'll pay for that, too,' he said. "'When do you suppose we shall get to New York?' "'I don't use New York any, nor Boston. We may see Eastern Point about September, and your pa—' "'I'm real sorry I ain't heard tell of him. May give me ten dollars after all your talk.' That of course, he mayn't. Ten dollars! Why, see here, I— Harvey dived into his pocket for the wad of bills. All he brought up was a soggy packet of cigarettes. Not lawful currency, and bad for the lungs. Heave em overboard, young feller, and try again. It's been stolen! cried Harvey, hotly. You'll have to wait till you see your pa to reward me, then? A hundred and thirty-four dollars, all stolen," said Harvey, hunting wildly through his pockets. "'Give them back!' A curious change flitted across old Troop's hard face. "'What might you have been doing at your time of life with one hundred and thirty-four dollars, young feller?' "'It was part of my pocket-money, for a month.' This Harvey thought would be a knock-down blow, and it was, indirectly. Oh, one hundred and thirty-four dollars is only part of his pocket-money, for one month only. You don't remember hitting anything when you fell over, do you? Crack against a stanchion, let's say? Old man Haskin of the East Wind, Troop seemed to be talking to himself, he tripped on a hatch and butted the mainmast with his head, hardish. About three weeks afterwards, old man Haskin, he would have it that the east wind was a commerce-destroying man-o'-war, and so he declared war on Sable Island because it was British, and the shoals run out too far. They sewed him up in a bed-bag, his head and feet appearing, for the rest of the trip, and now he's home in Essex playing with little rag-dolls. Harvey choked with rage, but Troop went on consolingly. We're sorry for you. We're very sorry for you. And so young. We won't say no more about the money, I guess. Course you won't. You stole it. Suit yourself. We stole it, if it's any comfort to you. Now, about going back. Allowing we could do it, which we can't. You ain't in no fit state to go back to your home, and we've just come on to the banks, working for our bread. We don't see the half of a hundred dollars a month, let alone pocket-money, and with good luck we'll be ashore again somewheres about the first weeks of September. But, but it's May now, and I can't stay here doing nothing just because you want to fish. I can't, I tell you. Right and jest, jest and right. No one asks you to do nothing. There's a heap as you can do, for Otto he went overboard on Le Havre. I mistrust he lost his grip in a gale we found there. Anyways, 
he never come back to deny it. You've turned up plain, plum providential for all concerned. I mistrust, though, there's rather few things you can do. Ain't that so? I can make it lively for you and your crowd when we get ashore, said Harvey with a vicious nod, murmuring vague threats about piracy, at which Troop almost, not quite, smiled. Sept talk. I'd forgot that. You ain't asked to talk more'n you've a mind to aboard the We're Here. Keep your eyes open, and help Dan to do as he's bid, and such like, and I'll give you— You ain't worth it, but I'll, I'll give ten and a half a month, say, thirty-five at the end of the trip. A little work will ease up your head, and you can tell us all about your dad and your ma and your money afterwards. She's on the steamer, said Harvey, his eyes filled with tears. Take me to New York at once. Poor woman, poor woman. When she has you back she'll forget it all, though. There's eight of us on the weir here, and if we went back now, it's more'n a thousand miles, we'd lose the season. The men they wouldn't have it, allowin' I was agreeable. But my father would make it all right. He'd try. I don't doubt he'd try, said Troop. But a whole season's catch is eight men's bread, and you'll be better in your health when you see him in the fall. Go forward and help Dan. It's ten and a half a month, as I said, and, of course, I'll find just as the rest of us. Do you mean I'm to clean pots and pans and things? said Harvey. And other things. You've no call to shout, young feller. I won't. My father will give you enough to buy this dirty little fish-kettle, Harvey stamped on the deck. Ten times over, if you take me to New York safe, and, and, you're in a hundred and thirty by me anyway. How? said Troop, the iron face darkening. How? You know how, well enough. On top of all that, you want me to do menial work. Harvey was very proud of that adjective. Till the fall, I tell you, I will not. You hear? Troop regarded the top of the mainmast with deep interest for a while, as Harvey harangued fiercely all around him. Hush, he said at last. I'm figuring out my responsibilities in my own mind. It's a matter of judgment. Dan stole up and plucked Harvey by the elbow. Don't go to tampering with Dad any more, he pleaded. You've called him a thief two or three times over, and he don't take that from any living being. I won't, Harvey almost shrieked, disregarding the advice, and still Troop meditated. Seems kinder unneighborly, he said at last, his eye traveling down to Harvey. I don't blame you, not a mite, young feller nor you won't blame me when the bile's out of your system. Be sure you sense what I say. Ten and a half for second boy on the schooner, and all fund. For to teach you and for the sake of your health. Yes or no? No, said Harvey. Take me back to New York, or I'll see you. He did not exactly remember what followed. He was lying in the scuppers, holding on to a nose that bled, while Troop looked down on him serenely. "'Dan,' 
he said to his son, I was set against this young feller when I first saw him, on account of hasty judgments. Never you be led astray by hasty judgments, Dan. Now I'm sorry for him, because he's clear distracted in his upper works. He ain't responsible for the names he's give me, nor for his other statements, nor for jumping overboard, which I'm about half convinced he did. You be gentle with him, Dan, or I'll give you twice what I give him them hemorrhages clears the head. Let him sluice it off." Troop went down solemnly into the cabin, where he and the older men bunked, leaving Dan to comfort the luckless heir to thirty millions. End of chapter